I want to talk with you today about how the gospel and rightly understanding the gospel actually fuels generosity and fuels the generous life. And I'd like to actually begin with the City Life Center because of, uh, and to tell you a story from this week of, of how this, I think, uh, is illustrated. So um, this fall, I reached out to a few of the local churches here that we have relationships with and set up uh, a meeting at the City Life Center this past week uh, with some of these leaders to just let them see what the ministry is and uh, to to introduce them to it. I think they were suspicious that I was going to ask them to uh, financially support with their churches, the City Life Center, and they suspected rightly. That's exactly what I was doing. So, uh, so anyway, they had never been there. They came, uh, we, we met uh, there in kind of a little commons area at our Gary campus. We had some coffee, we're talking, just telling the story. Ken was there and Dexter and telling the story. And, as we're talking here through the through the commons comes these you know these cute kids right and there there's a volunteer and a staff person and they they kind of disappear into this room they're going to do you know performing arts or whatever they're going to do and it was just like oh look at them there's there's the the center at work so we got up and and we started doing a tour and we go into this one particular room and here's all of these uh, children and there's a um, volunteers, frankly, from our church that go and, and provide mentoring time there, and they're helping them with their homework and all that. Oh, this is really nice. So we, we go into another room, and here's some more kids, and there's uh, teaching going on. It's all organized, and we go into a computer lab, and we go into the cafeteria, and uh, we say, hey, we do a lot of things in here, but one of the things we do is we feed hot meals. In fact, we've served 17, the last 12 months, we've served 17,000 hot meals here in, in downtown Gary. And I, I'm just kind of watching their eyes, okay? And I, I think I could have sensed it early on, but certainly by the time we got to that point, I was beginning to see a kind of nodding. Hmm, you know. The one guy was a kind of tough-looking FBI agent. I could tell even he was touched by what he was seeing there. And... As we walked and as we talked, there was something that was connecting with them. I mean, what do you say when there is an, an entire ministry devoted to uh, at-risk inner-city kids who pay absolutely nothing and yet are provided educational and uh, fun opportunities there in their, in their town? What do you say about that? Well, it says something all by itself, doesn't it? It says something. And that something that it says is something that is really important to the God of the universe. And I want to highlight why that is here today as we talk about the generous life and why the gospel itself fuels generosity. That God is glorified in the generosity of his people. Now, the longer answer for this is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 which is going to be my text today, and it's, we're not reading every verse because it's longer than, than our time allows, but this is the Apostle Paul writing to this church at Corinth and urging them to the generous life. So I want to let the Apostle Paul kind of do the talking here and just explain what he is saying and then do a little application for us here uh, today. And what I hope 
you get today is that the generous life is the best life. And if you are currently not in the flow of generosity in your life, that yes, there's maybe some ministry or some missionary or some church that is negatively affected by it, but the person who is really missing out is you, okay, is you. Now with that, let's come now to what the Apostle Paul has to say. I'm just gonna begin reading in verse one. Here's what he writes. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In these chapters, Paul is going to give several reasons urging these Corinthians to the generous life. And the first one that he does is he gives them the example of the poor Macedonian Christians. And there's a backstory here that they would have understood. Hopefully, we all will here in just a second. But the context is that, the, so you have the Apostle Paul. He is planting churches. He is doing gospel ministry throughout Asia Minor. As he is doing this, he becomes aware of the poverty that the Jerusalem church was experiencing. Now, the reason for this was there had been a famine in Jerusalem for like a decade. And not only that, there was persecution of the Christians. So you combine these two together, and the, the Christians in Jerusalem were severely struggling. They were in desperate need of help. And so uh, since, you know, to use Ken's uh, comment earlier, the, the mothership, Jerusalem was, is the mothership. They were the, the church of Pentecost Day. They were the church that birthed all the other churches and sent out the apostles and others across the world. So they are now the ones that are hurting. And so Paul is ministering in these, in these Gentile communities with a heart for the needs of the Jerusalem church. He also was very, very concerned that the age-old bigotry and racism would somehow break the unity of the church. The Jews and the Gentiles, historically not getting along. In the early church, that was one of the big issues that happened was, what about these Gentiles now that are becoming Christians and this sort of awkwardness between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? Paul writes to Galatians, for example, to urge them to the truth here that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that understanding of the one church, that there's one Savior, one church, one spirit, that we are united together, was a huge priority for the Apostle Paul. So what better way to show unity than for the Gentile church to hear of the needs of the Jerusalem church and to say, let's take up a collection and let's meet the needs of the mothership. Let's meet the needs of the Jewish believers. And of course, few things say I love you better than cold, hard cash. What's everybody's favorite Christmas present? 
cold, hard cash, right? So let's take up a collection and let's say I love you, Jerusalem Church, and here's cold, hard cash to help you meet your needs. Now, a fascinating development that happened in this process of collecting is what happened in Macedonia. Again, in verse 2, regarding these Macedonians, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, the Macedonians in the, in the area of Macedonia, this is like northern Greece, uh, was well known for not being the wealthiest kind of area. This was, this was the lower middle class, this was the lower class, this was the poor class. Macedonia. <coughs> Anybody else got what I got? Like half of Northwest Indiana has it, I think. Would you throw all that water up? Just throw it, I can catch it here. Daughter of a baseball player, come on. <laughs> all right. So the Macedonians, Paul describes their situation as, notice, test of affliction and extreme poverty. So their personal financial situation, not good, not good at all. And yet, when it came to this collection, he says that they gave in a wealth of generosity, that's verse 2, not, not a wealth of financial like generosity because they didn't have any money, but a wealth of generosity, the spirit behind what they were doing. They gave what they could and even beyond what they could, beyond their means. And notice it says in verse 4 that they begged Paul to do it. They begged him to be able to give to the Jerusalem offering. Now, we take up a collection every single week here and uh, lots of ways to give, online, digital, blah, blah, blah. But in my 25 years of ministry, I don't recall anybody ever begging for the offering in the service. Okay, now we have some clapping and some joy and things like that that we do, but I don't remember anybody ever, like, begging for it. Pastor Steve, can we give now? Now, come on! Signaling the ushers, right? Come on, man, let's take the offering. Been waiting all week for this. Please, please let me give. I haven't seen that. Now, doesn't mean that we're not excited about it, etc. But you see that Macedonian spirit where there's, there's such an eagerness to give. And yet they're the poor ones. That's the thing that Paul's highlighting here, is they're the poor ones. Begging. I was just imagining as I thought about that, if we were, you know, begging for the offering and the service, people would look around and think, what kind of cult is this, right? What kind of nut jobs do we have in this church begging for the offering? And so Paul's writing now not to the Macedonians, he's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthian Christians are the opposite of the Macedonian Christians financially. Okay, they are the rich Christians. These, these are the, the wine and cheese Christians of the first century. These are the country club Christians of the first century. Corinth itself was a very wealthy city. It was, it was large, had 
uh, key uh, trade and, and, and ports and opportunities to make money. To this day, if you go on a tour of Greece, you're going to go to Corinth and you're going to see the remnant of some really massive buildings all indicating the wealth of this city. So do you see what Paul's doing then here is he is pointing he is talking to the Corinthians, but he's pointing to the Macedonians, and he is saying, hey, you rich Corinthians, look at what the poor Macedonians did, and the joy and the begging and the gladness that they had in the giving. And he's basically saying, so what about you? What about you? Now here today, I know that if, if we opened the financial books of our church and saw the, the giving in our congregation we would be deeply touched by the Macedonian giving that we have here in our church. And what I mean by that is, I know that we have widows and fixed income people, people that, that you know, they got things they could be doing with their, their dollars, but they give it to the Lord's work. And I, if, if that's you here today, I want you to know and see in the text of Scripture that God delights in Macedonian eager giving. He's honored by it, and we praise God for you. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. Right down to those widow's mites, the Lord knows the heart behind the giving. But here is the interesting statistic, and all the studies show this, that the more people have, the less they give. Now, there are lots of exceptions to this, okay? But by and large, the more people have, the less they they give. And you could say, well, why? That seems sort of counterintuitive. It seems like if you don't have very much, you wouldn't give that much. But if you have a lot, you would give more because you would have more to give. But somehow the opposite happens. There's something in the human heart that, you know, that when it comes to money, we get funny. Okay? There's a little funny thing that happens. And the Corinthian types are not necessarily known for Macedonian generosity. And that's where the Macedonian generosity challenges the Corinthian Christian to follow in their example. And that's what Paul does here in these verses, is he begins with the Macedonians and says, hey, look at them, look what they did, and they don't have near as much as you do. Now, the second thing that Paul does here is he, he says, if, if the Macedonians don't move you and that's not enough for you, well, then let's talk about Jesus. And that's what he does now in verse 8. Look what he says. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So the second example now is the incomprehensible generosity of Jesus to us. And he highlights now the story of Christ. And he says, hey, just think a moment about the richness of Jesus prior to the incarnation. Okay, so what was it like for Jesus, son of God, pre-incarnate, dwelling there, all glory is his. He's the creator of the world. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So the whole world is his. So when you think about, okay, what's, what is the category of Jesus' uh, wealth, it's incomprehensible, isn't it? I mean, what do you say about that? And it's not so much primarily his financial wealth, it is the fullness of his experience as the Son of God. 
the glory that is his, the honor that is his. Okay, so though he was rich, yet he became poor. This is incarnation, okay? Incarnation. He became poor. This is the humiliation of his experience. I could use a Kleenex, babe, too, if you throw that box up here. All right. We'll have a pharmacy up here soon. <clears throat> Wish we didn't have high def cameras. <laughs> All right. Humiliation of Christ. He leaves that fullness, that glorious fullness, and comes down and becomes a human being, right? Now, part of that is just is the, is the humiliation of the incarnation, but I think it's primarily, again, it's, and it's not talking about his financial poverty when he was on earth, because although he was, you know, we would consider him poor by our standards, he was, he was not rich, but he wasn't a beggar either. Okay, they would give to the poor. Remember, Judas kept the bag, and they would give money to the poor. So there was a certain you know, financial support that he had. But it's not about that. Okay? It, is, it is about his experience when compared to what he had in eternity past. The experience of being Jesus, of, of the sufferings of Christ, that Passion Week and the experience, the betrayal and the, and the, and the disloyalty of his friends and the, obviously the, the, the beatings and the scourging and the, the cross, all of that is in there. But then you add on to that him bearing sin, him dying in our place, that atoning work that he did for us as he bore our guilt, and then ultimately death itself. The Son of God dying is, I mean, talk about poverty of experience. That qualifies, especially when you compare to what was his in his glory, so think about, if the Macedonians don't move you, think about Christ and his generosity to us. That's the point. So generous to us. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't tithe to us? He gave it all. A 10% salvation, okay, 10% of your sins are forgiven and the rest of them you're gonna go to hell for. No, he gave it all so that we might be rich. And the result is that we, the spiritually impoverished ones, we're the spiritual Macedonians, we are suddenly ushered into a fullness of experience now and forever that we don't deserve. We're the bankrupt ones, but now in the scope of what God has given to us now, we're unbelievably rich. And that rich is is not necessarily financial. It is primarily the fullness of our experience of knowing our sins are forgiven and that we're children of God and that we have this relationship with our creator, not to mention when we die, we step into eternal life and eternal rewards and the experience that is ours forever in a glorified body as we will live in eternal bliss with our Savior and everybody else that follows Christ forever. And all of that is one-way love from God. We don't deserve it. He gives it to us. It is his generosity to us. And that's what real riches are. The spiritual, the relational, the eternal. 
And that's why in this world there are rich poor and there are poor rich. Okay? So the rich poor are those that are materially successful but spiritually bankrupt. The, 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 the rich poor are those that are materially whatever, it doesn't matter, Bill Gates or whatever kind of wealth, but spiritually bankrupt. This is the, the story of Jesus told with Lazarus and the rich man, where you had this rich man, and Lazarus sits outside his door and just eats the scraps that come out of the door of the rich man's house. But they both die, and the rich man goes to Hades, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And it's not because he was poor that he was saved, or the rich man was condemned because he was rich. It was because in this world, Lazarus was a believer, and the rich man was not. So Lazarus was the poor rich. I'm sorry, he was the rich poor. I'm getting it backwards. He was the rich poor. But Lazarus was the poor rich. Living for the right kind of riches is the constant appeal of Scripture when it comes to our relationship to money. To not live for it, to not love it, to not see my identity in it. This is what Jesus urged in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can decay and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your money will be also. The more I understand God's grace to me, and how he has made me rich, my bankruptcy and now the richness and the fullness of my experience as a Christian, the more that will cultivate this sense of generosity in my own life. I get how he has been generous to me. So maybe you've never met a Macedonian or heard anybody begging, but if you're a Christian, you know Christ, and you understand the gospel, and the application of that to my life is where generosity flows. Third, now I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 9, verse 6, is the pleasure of God in cheerful giving. Might be my favorite verse on this subject in the whole Bible. Here's what it says. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, so here's an agricultural term. <clears throat> I am in the state of Indiana. We are all familiar with cornfields. And, and farmers, at least, tractors, right? So we drive by these, maybe you did on the way here, came from DeMott especially, uh, but other places as well. You drove by a cornfield, and it's a basic principle that farmers operate by that the, if you put a little bit of seed out, then you're going to get a little bit of harvest. But if you put a lot of seed out, you're going to get a lot of harvest. So farmers like putting a lot of seed out because they want a very large harvest, if you saw a farmer and he's just spreading a couple seeds out there in a great big field, acres of, you say, what are you doing? I'm, I'm going to have a harvest. You're like, why are you only sowing that many seeds? Are you a very stupid farmer? And spiritually speaking, God operates by the same principle. That for those that sow sparingly, God, in terms of that sort of harvest in your life, rewards sparingly. But those that reap or so bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now this is where if you go home today and turn on the television, there's gonna be some 
lunatic prosperity preacher that's going to try to convince everybody that's listening it's a, it's a get-rich-quick scheme. You give to God, I guarantee God's going to give back to you. Your $10 be $100. Your $100 be $1,000. Your $1,000 be $10,000. And by the way, here's the name of my ministry and how to send the check. That is not what Jesus is saying. Okay, That is not at all the point. Although it might be. God can do that. And I think that he does that sometimes. He blesses those that are generous to his work so that they can continue to be a greater blessing. But it doesn't say that it's always that. And, and here's what we can know is that whatever God blesses us with, it is far greater than whatever we gave to him. He is more generous to us than we are to him. Okay? Or to hear it, you've maybe heard it this way, you can't outgive God. You just can't. Now that doesn't mean that what you give to God, God's gonna give back to you financially. But there's so many other things that are really important to us that God can bless us, that we're so glad that we did. Praying for that child to come to faith and saving faith in the Lord. Praying over that issue health-wise in your family, your life, whatever it is. Praying over the quality of your marriage. Praying for friendship. Praying for the enriched life. So many things that are way beyond money that God can just bless us in all these different categories. And he promises to do that. So sparingly, reap sparingly, so much, reap much. Give little, reap little. Give much, reap much. Giving is a command. But Paul here appeals, and this is what I love about this verse, he doesn't appeal to the command or the duty. He appeals to the heart and to love, or what we call around here an oblatunity. Look at verse seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart and not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I take from that that he's a little less excited about the non-giver or the no cheer giver. Why? Because our happiness in giving is what turns whatever we are doing, whatever we are giving, it turns it from a duty into an act of worship. And that's what God loves, is when it flows from our heart with gladness. Or to say it this way, it ought to feel different writing the tithe check versus writing the tax check. You know that check you write in April every year? A little hard to get excited about that one, isn't it? Because it feels like the government is requiring me to do this, and indeed they are. And yes, I know, render to Caesar what is Caesar, but he doesn't say do it happily. (laughs) But when you give to God, give cheerfully, right? Give cheerfully. And this is what takes this whole category from sort of the have to, and I don't want you to get that from this message here today, it's the want to. And that's what honors the Lord is when I give because I want to. And there's a sort of joy and gladness in doing it. Like the Macedonians, right? We insist. We're begging. Right now. We want to do it. Let's give. Or what Paul calls in this verse, cheerful. Cheerful giving. What is an opportunity when what I have to do is what I want to do? And giving ought to be that for us. And yet money is the hardest thing to do it with, I think. If I got up here and I said, hey, everybody, you know what? You need to give more time to the Lord. 
nobody feels like I'm stepping on their toes. If I say, hey, everybody, we need to give more prayers to the Lord. Shouldn't we pray more? Yeah, that's right. You're a good pastor for saying it. But whenever we talk about this category, all of a sudden it gets sort of like stepping on toes type preaching. And I'm appealing here, and Paul appeals to the heart, right? And that sense of gladness. And that if I don't, I'm I'm the one that's missing out here. And it's because our hearts are so tethered to our money that this is so hard for us to talk about. All Jesus is saying is, listen, your heart and your money, wherever your money goes, your heart goes. And where your heart goes, your money goes. So therefore, if you invest all of your time and energy and your money in things in this world, then your heart's gonna be worldly. But if you, te- if you give your time, attention, and your money to the things of God, the kingdom of God, gospel ministry, reaching people, meeting needs, loving the poor, your heart is going to be tethered to that. And that produces a life of blessing and joy and enrichment that living for simply the materialistic can never produce. And so the Christian appeal is not a taxation. It is love. It's love. A joyful giving. And the fact that Paul has to point this out to the Corinthians makes me think that maybe he got the idea when he was in Corinth that they were a little tight-fisted. They were the rich, tight-fisted types. But the Macedonians, boy, what an example. And Paul reassures them now in verse 12 that God is glorified in Christian generosity. Look what it says. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. So Paul ends here with this like ultimate goal, and this is the goal of all things, right? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Whether you eat or drink or give or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our aim in our lives is to bring glory to the Lord. And Paul here says that when Christians are generous, it produces thanksgiving. It's an opportunity for people to see the work of God in our heart and in our life. How? Okay, how does that work? Here's one way. When we give, we are doing the opposite of what the natural man or society around us does, lives for, prioritizes. Our culture is not about giving, it is about keeping, it is about accumulating, it is about hoarding and living for that. But the Christian is the opposite of that. I want to live for the glory of God. And I want my giving and everything in my life to flow towards that goal. Now, if you think I'm being a little bit uh, stepping on your toes today, I'm going to read from a famous pastor, Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor 200 years ago. So you're always safe quoting 200-year dead eminent Christian people, right? So this is what he said to his congregation. I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friend, enjoy your money, 
Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Now, they write books about that guy. And he talked to his congregation like he really cared about their eternal state. And I would rather like to do that myself here as I stand before you to urge you that you will someday be so glad for the generous giving to missionaries. I mean, there's so many categories here. Whatever it is, someday you'll be glad that you did it. And the rich young ruler, another example of this, who went away sad. Remember the story? He came to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, obey the commands. And he says, I have since I was a kid. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, come follow me, you'll be rich in in eternity. And the text says that he went away sad because he was very wealthy. Or to say it this way, his identity and his comfort and his whole hope was in his money. All these statements are connecting to how natural it is for us in our sinfulness to relate to money. How can this change? And as McShane says here, we need a new heart, right? We need a new heart. But that's what God gives us. When we become Christians, we get a new heart, new set of desires, a new kind of relationship with things in this world, including the old idol of money, and the fruit of that is generosity, okay? And when we give it away, the culture that lives for opposite priorities thinks to themselves, hmm, I'm not sure how to explain that. How do I explain a South Lake County church doing a community center and sending money to at-risk children in downtown Gary? We are saying something to this whole community in doing that. And it's an opportunity for us to answer the question, why? And the answer to that is because God has given one-way generosity to us through his son, Jesus. And that's the gospel. And when I get that gospel this way, now it frees my heart to be generous this way. In that way, it confesses the gospel. It reenacts the gospel because God has been generous to me. Now I'm going to be generous to others. And your friends go, wait a second, are they putting your name on a plaque or are you getting the building named after you or something like that? Is there some brochure that you're gonna be noticed and and, and highlighted for your generosity? Nope, 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 not doing that. It's because Christ has changed my life. It's the gospel, okay? Now, Pastor Steve, are you talking about this because of more and better? Yes, I am. And no, I am not. Yes, I am, because it is an opportunity, just like the Jerusalem collection was an opportunity for Paul to write 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and to teach the Corinthians about a life of stewardship lived to the glory of God. And more and better provides an opportunity for our church, for application, whether we're a Macedonian or a Corinthian here today. Now, by the way, you could ask the question, well, I wonder how those Corinthians responded to some of these words from the Apostle Paul. Let me read to you the end of the story. Here's Romans 15. This is what happened. I am going to Jerusalem, Paul writes this, bringing aid to the saints. So there's the collection. For Macedonia 
and Achaia, which by the way is Corinth, have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And notice the final words, for they were pleased to do it. You know what happened? The Corinthians got that letter. They responded by giving to this collection and the, need, the needs of the, of the church in Jerusalem were met. And I just think, when, let's, let's let that be our story here, right? Let's let that be our story here. Faithful stewarding of the resources that God gives to us, understanding the gospel of Jesus' grace and generosity to us, flowing out in cheerful, glad-hearted giving to the kingdom of God, so honored to give it to the king. To him be all praise and glory. Amen.